This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. One of the big news stories of the year was Doug Ford's majority win in the provincial election. Six months in, is the honeymoon over for this new progressive conservative government? We've assembled a panel of expert political pundits to weigh in on the first term and to look at what's ahead in the new year. And no gift giving at Christmas? Bah humbug, you say? While it may seem Scrooge-like, it's becoming a trend. We find out what's driving the idea with a leading futurist who's been successfully predicting trends for decades. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We know that Christmas can be an especially lonely time of year, and a new study has found that people feel the most lonely during their late 20s, their mid-50s, and their late 80s. The late 20s, because they are a period of stress as people need to make major decisions like changing jobs or settling on a life partner. The mid-50s, because this is typically when people begin to see their parents and friends die, and the late 80s when people frequently lose friends and spouses. The study suggested personality can influence how loneliness develops and how long it will last. Opioids are no better at treating chronic pain than over-the-counter pain meds. This according to new research that analyzed the results of 100 studies on the effectiveness of opioids at treating chronic non-cancer pain. It raises questions about how often the drugs are prescribed, considering their addictive risks. The researchers found opioids are only slightly better than a placebo at treating pain and provide similar benefits to ibuprofen and naproxen. The results are published in the American Medical Association Journal. The oldest known person with HIV turns 100 soon. It's not known when and how the Portuguese senior contracted HIV, but his medical team believes he was living with the virus for about a decade before being diagnosed at 84. Almost completely independent, he lives alone and receives only minimal assistance from a family member. Doctors say his case shows that patients can experience healthy aging with the virus once considered a death sentence. Hundreds of Christmas carolers gathered in a park near London, Ontario this week to grant a dying man's final Christmas wish by singing to him. Oh, absolutely fabulous. I've never had anything like this in my life. That's 78-year-old Harry Toll, who has terminal lung cancer and will not likely see another Christmas. With just 24 hours' notice, 300 people, mostly strangers, showed up to sing the holiday classics. We're gonna do it. Give us 
That's the theme song from the iconic 70s sitcom Laverne and Shirley. This week, actress and comedian Penny Marshall, best known for her role as Laverne, died at her home in California from complications of diabetes. The 75-year-old rose to fame in the 70s with Laverne and Shirley and later went on to become a groundbreaking female director. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. My friends, a new day will dawn in Ontario. That's Ontario's 26th Premier being sworn in this past June following a majority election win. Observers say the Party for the People got off to a great and furiously fast start, fulfilling campaign promises. But there have been missteps recently for this young government. Where do they stand as we break for the holidays and how will 2019 shape up? Right now, part one of our year-end review with our expert political panel, Bob Richardson, Kim Wright, and John Capobianco. If you think back to the beginning of this year, Patrick Brown was going to be the premier of the province. Doug Ford wanted to run against John Tory to be mayor of Toronto. And then the whole world went topsy-turvy. And here you are at the end of the year with Patrick as the mayor of Brampton, Doug as the premier of the province, and John with a very reduced council as the mayor of Toronto. So it's been a fascinating year just from that. And I think when you take a look at it, whether you like Ford or dislike Ford, He's driving the provincial agenda. He's driving the national conservative agenda. He's driving, to to a great extent, the national agenda, period. Carbon tax being a good example of that. And to a certain extent, he's driving the liberal agenda against him. So there's no question that he is the political story or the political play of the year. And John, how do you think he's doing? Well, I think he's doing well, and, and I would say that you know as a conservative, but I say that I think he really is doing well, and I think for a number of reasons. One is, as Kim alluded to, you know, he was at one point running and focusing running for mayor of Toronto, and then of course the Patrick Brown stuff happened, and then he gets thrown into this, and gets widely seen as probably someone who would never become leader, let alone premier. Uh, underestimated, uh, sort of from the perspective of his political career at that level, more people thought that he would have a better chance of being mayor of Toronto than actually being premier of the province. So he comes in and he has a short leadership race, wins that, and has a very short runway to become premier of the province and gets it and, and does it on, on, I think, very few specific policy uh, election platform issues, right? He had five buckets that were pretty general in scope of, of what he wanted to do, gets elected. And I think he's, by and large, been trying to govern that way. And I think it's business over politics for Doug and his team. And they're trying to run through their agenda as fast as they can, as early as they can within their term. So I think he's doing well. Kim, let's be clear, it isn't all about business over politics. A lot of what the premier has wanted to do was to dismantle everything that he saw either as getting in the way of his narrative or, you know, fulfilling some campaign promises like the sex ed curriculum, but really making it so that there wasn't a moment to breathe. There are a lot of things that he put forward that perhaps could have used a pause some second thoughts and maybe some refinements before it went to the legislature. Bob, you and I were at an event on the weekend with uh, some former very senior government people who were describing the way this government is being run in very disparaging terms, like it was 
an S show. Do you see it that way? I'm a little less harsh than some of them were. I, I would give it mixed marks. And I think Ontarians are giving it mixed marks. There's been at least two or three polls out showing their numbers down since the election and showing his personal numbers down. And quite frankly, for a new incumbent premier, not exactly in the range that you'd want to be in. I think they had a decent start. I think he picked a decent cabinet. I think their summer session was actually pretty good. It wouldn't have been something I would have done. But once they did it, I thought, geez, you know, it made some sense. And it showed energy and enthusiasm. He went after some low-hanging fruit. And any government who's been in for 15 years, there's low-hanging fruit. And I thought they did a good job cleaning up some of that sort of stuff. I think he's had a crappy last six weeks, to be honest. I think they have not done a great job on the hydrophile. On the issue of the deficit, they're all over the map and way overreached politically and got caught doing so. Their little legislature committee is kind of blown up in their face to a certain extent and is widely viewed as a joke. It was a bit surprising to a lot of people in non-political circles that you would have somebody who hadn't led a police force to become the head of the OPP. Now, there may be very good reasons for that, uh, but those weren't articulated. And part of the challenge that I think the Premier has had in the last few weeks has been there has been a lot of decisions that you might have, if you had a proper explanation, been able to say, this is part of an overarching strategy, we've got concerns about this or that, or we think that this person is a great fit for X, Y, and Z reasons. But that wasn't what was articulated. It was, no, there's nothing to see here. There's absolutely nothing to see here. And frankly, we've all been around politics long enough when you start to see, quote unquote, scurrilous allegations. uh, There's usually probably a little bit of smoke to that and a little bit of fire. Some of the cuts that they've started to make are, you know, controversial. There were just some after-school programs that were cut. The government says they were wasteful. Can we expect more of the same? Well, and I think the cuts, Libby, are, you have to put them in context as well. We had 15 years of a liberal government that just didn't understand what cuts were all about. The premier's made it pretty clear that he's going to make sure that jobs aren't being cut. Um, well, they offered buyouts, though. Yeah, those, well, are, those are cuts by other names. And frankly, the moment that they came into office and cut the climate change plan, it actually took an awful lot of revenue out of the coffers that were supposed to flow through to schools and hospitals and communities to ensure that, frankly, buildings weren't falling derelict as they had been for 15 years under the previous government. But, but they wanted to actually stop stop what, companies and businesses came from all, actually leaving the province, was, which has been seen for the last 15 well, years. So they're that, actually... The climate change plan wasn't to blame for those things or other well, forces. Well, the cap and trade but, was and all the, the taxes of, that they were going to impose on that. One of the challenges that I see in terms of the after-school programs that were cut, if you remember, those were a lot of those were implemented because of the Jordan Manor shooting. It was finding solutions to help at-risk youth in communities that were particularly vulnerable. There doesn't seem to be an overall game plan. There's a bit of a chaotic feel to this government. Some people in government will tell you that too as well. Even yet another emergency session of the legislature. There seems to be constant emergency sessions of the legislature and and things going on, which isn't happening, by the way, in any of the other 13 legislatures across the country right now. That was our panel of political experts, Bob Richardson, Kim Wright, and John Capobianco. Next week in this time slot, part two of our conversation with the focus on federal politics as we enter an election year. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a new trend in gift-giving that's gaining favor this holiday season. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
When my husband Doug asked if we could skip Christmas gifts this year, I had no idea we were on the leading edge of a trend. After all, it's just the two of us and I'm Jewish. Between work, travel, and jet lag, the prospect of shopping was just another stressor. But exhaustion is just one of the reasons the no-gift Christmas is taking off. A well-known futurist says everything from religion to environmental activism is driving the trend. We reached Faith Popcorn in New York. I think it's going to translate into gifts, unusual kind of gifts, or maybe you sign up for a certain amount of hours that you'll take their kids, like babysitting, or maybe you'll give them a dinner party where they can invite, you know, your friends can invite who they like a dinner party for 10, or maybe you'll um, volunteer to drive. You see, people are, people are looking for relief from an incredibly pressured uh, life and just almost hard to difficult to manage and it has nothing to do with what um, economic stance you are in. It's just become 99 lives. We call it in the blur. Like everything's moving so fast. It's like a giant blur. What are the motivations for wanting a no gift Christmas? I gather there are different motivations. too, Too hard to buy the gifts. So you're going out, you're sponsoring a retail, which is, by the way, an interesting economy, or you're going online and it's without any, like, emotion or feeling, and you're going, okay, that color, that sweater, that thing, here's the address. It becomes like an administrative task instead of something that you really think about and you give, you know, with love or feeling, and I think that people are just so burnt out by it, and on top of everything else, they just would love to have a reason not to have to do it. There are other motivations as well, and how do they play in? I think, you know, religious. Yes, we've lost the idea, for those of us that believe, you know, in religion, of what the real meaning behind Christmas is. And I think that we've become too money-motivated, you know, how big, which initials are going to be on it. I think that's a part of it. I think exhaustion is definitely a part of it. I think the whole idea of the environment crumbling We're saying, like, we're out buying cashmere sweaters or, you know, whatever, and we should be focused on the ability to hand the planet down to those in our families. The environmental thing, do you think that's something that is really going to grow in the coming years? I do. I I heard this little 15-year-old. She was talking about how the government's not focused on the right things and how they're being lazy and they're not addressing this and the environmental piece and you know it's almost too late to address it by the way and i think that brings up a hopelessness in a way if you don't even think you could save it even if you tried we're at epidemic levels of household debt right and people always wait till after the holidays till they realize how overextended they are so mm-hmm. how much of that do you think is a factor? I just don't think people are very good future thinkers. So as long as they have their hot little card in their hand, I'm not sure that they're thinking, like, what's January going to look like? Actually, you know, the credit card companies could do something wonderful and just stop all credit for December. Well, I don't know about that. So you see this kind of as the beginning of a trend? I see this as an indicator that 
things, and we're seeing that through the demise of retail already, that things will become less and less important and missions wrapped around things, you know, when something comes with a mission, becomes absolutely the only way you'll buy it. And millennials and Gen Zs are there already. You want to know what the company is about, what they stand for, how much they're contributing, etc. People want experience. They want to feel something because what's happened is the over-accumulation or aspirational collecting of goods has kind of taken away our feeling. We have less feeling almost in our you know, how we look at things. We don't feel that much. So we need a lot of experience, a lot of jolt, a lot of music, a lot of anime, a lot of color to, like, wake us up. So I can't imagine that simple little Christmas cards and little Christmas box wrappings are going to have much interest in the near future. So bottom line, is this a sort of a massive culture-changing thing? I think that it is going to wind up to be much bigger. I think that the idea of the more toys you have, you know, the better you are, I think is kind of over. That was Faith Popcorn, a futurist and author of three best-selling books. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, chestnuts roasting, two words that conjure up one of the most iconic Christmas songs ever. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international art state book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. We begin in Amsterdam. Photos documenting the Beatles' 1968 visit to India have surfaced in a portfolio compiled by George Harrison's ex-wife, Patty Boyd. Twelve of the photos have never been exhibited before. In Boston, a collection of black and white photos taken by Ansel Adams has gone on display at the Museum of Fine Arts. A $46 million injection is bringing London's oldest theater back to life. The 1,300-seat theater at Alexander Castle has not been used in more more than 80 years. And the German town where Elvis Presley did his military service 60 years ago has transformed three traffic lights into Elvis lights. On red, they show the king standing at a microphone. On green, Elvis is seen mid-hip shake. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. Christmas is just two days away, and here at Zoomer Radio, we've been playing the greatest hits of the holidays, including one of the most popular holiday tunes of all time, The Christmas Song, written by Mel Torme and Robert Wells. The two actually came up with the song in the middle of a blistering hot summer. Torme says the pair weren't actually trying to write a Christmas song, they were just trying to keep cool by thinking of winter. Bob Wells scratched out, Chestnuts Roasting, Jack Frost Nipping, Yuletide Carols, Folks Dressed Up Like Eskimos. An hour later, they were finished writing it. And here is the definitive version sung by Nat King Cole.
That was Nat King Cole with the Christmas song written by Mel Torme and Bob Wells. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. And I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.